Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon Anker for Bloomberg News, Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Each episode, we will explore the diversity and vibrancy of Asia through discussions with important Asia-focused government and business leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. Today, we are pleased to be joined by decorated Admiral, Ambassador, and National Security Leader Harry Harris. Ambassador Harris most recently served as the U.S. Ambassador to South Korea from 2018 to 2021. Prior to that, he was commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and the first Asian American to hold that position. Ambassador Harris graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1978, launching a military career in which he served in every U.S. Geographic Combatant Command logging 4,400 flight hours, including 400 combat hours. From 2011 to 2013, he served as liaison between the Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, working with Secretary Hillary Clinton and Secretary John Kerry to monitor the Middle East peace process. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time today and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast. It's great to be with you, Sherry uh, and Rexon. Uh, Rexon, it's great to see you again. So tell us a little bit about some of the experiences that you went through, especially how did you see the role of the U.S. military perhaps changing during your years of service? Well, I, I think the, the military uh, over, over the 40 years that I served uh, has become a much more inclusive uh, organization. Uh, it's always been one where uh, merit, meritocracy matters, but over my time, I got to see the Navy become more inclusive in terms of diversity and all of those important things uh, that make the United States up. So I always said that uh, you know diversity is a strength of our country uh, and diversity is the strength of our nation's military. Um, and so that's probably the biggest change over time. All the other changes, you know, you can... Uh, uh, you can assume uh, technology. You know, I, I flew an, an analog airplane, the P-3 Orion, uh, and now uh, the, the P-8 Poseidon, which replaced it, uh, is a digital aircraft. The, the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, digital aircraft, you know, Aegis weapon systems on ships and all of that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, technology has, has moved forward, of course, and the military has kept peace with that. But the biggest change is, are those uh, changes that are harder to see, uh, and that includes diversity. Ambassador, thanks. Can we start jumping into the time you spent as ambassador in South Korea? As we were talking about before, this wasn't your first exposure directly to diplomacy, State Department, given your time working with and, and serving uh, Secretary Clinton as the military advisor to the State Department. But the ambassadorship in South Korea thrust you into uh, a far more prominent position. Um, and as a military advisor, you know, you are uh, among a few who have made that transition and, and reminded if we go back a, a bit to George C. Marshall. So can you reflect on diplomacy as 
a retired admiral, uh, a retired admiral who oversaw uh, military strategy, defense relationships across the Indo-Pacific region. Talk to us a little bit about that transition and, and your reflections on it, having you know stepped down from the job uh, about four months ago. Sure. Uh, thanks, Rex. You know, I, I never um, planned uh, to have a diplomatic career following my time in the Navy. I plan to go fishing, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and I was asked, uh, you know, first to, to go to Australia, and then uh, literally the 11th hour and, and the steps to confirmation that was pulled and uh, uh, I was uh, moved over into, into the South Korea posting. Uh, and then I went through the confirmation process for that. And, and then, uh, you know, I retired uh, from the military on the 1st of June. And on the 4th of June, uh, the following Monday, uh, I was in Washington at the Ambassador Seminar course. Uh, I testified uh, before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the 14th of June. I was confirmed on the 28th and sworn in on the 29th, and I left to get going. Uh, you know, stopped in Hawaii, picked up the wife and cats, and then uh, went on to Korea. Uh, I think that uh, you know our system is uh, different uh, than most countries. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with many countries, uh, ambassadors and uh, country teams in Seoul. Our, our system is different, uh, markedly so, in that uh, the, the president uh, selects a lot of folks uh, as ambassadors uh, who are not career foreign service officers. I, I don't want to debate the merits of that. Uh, you know, it's a subject that's, uh, that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. But I will say that I felt prepared, just based on my background, to be uh, the ambassador to, to one of our key uh, allies, especially a military ally uh, like South Korea. I was not prepared uh, and I learned uh, the ambassador seminar in Washington is helpful in that regard and how to be a ambassador in working inside an embassy, because that was new to me. Uh, I will tell you that as we uh, briefly uh, talked about before we came online here, came on air, my time uh, as assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, where I worked directly with uh, the secretaries of state, uh, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, were instrumental in preparing me to be an ambassador. It, it was also just, uh, I'll say it because it's true, uh, it prepared me more for, for my role as a four-star admiral in the Pacific, you know, first as Pacific Fleet and then as Indo-PACOM than anything else. You know, because the people I work with and dealt with on a daily basis uh, in uniform at that level, yeah. and certainly as an ambassador, were people that I, I, I had met in uh, working with uh, Secretary Clinton and uh, Secretary Kerry, uh, and I worked with in Washington, who uh, are in the administration now. So uh, I felt prepared for the job. Great, great staff, great help at the embassy uh, to carry me along, by the way. Ambassador, can I pick up on on this point of the role of the ambassador in the embassy to ask you, you know, you you spent three years working with President Moon and his team. You have a, a textured sort of deep sense of our South Korean ally, the leader's objectives, what drives him. You know, as you as you think about what's ahead of us, President Moon's uh, will visit Washington, D.C., in about a week's time, and President Biden will host him, you know, second world leader to be hosted. President Moon has about a year left in office before the election in April of next year, where a successor will be selected. It won't be him. Give us, give us your perspective on what you expect to be 
South Korea's priorities when it comes to relations with the United States. You know, obviously North Korea tops the agenda. And then second, I would, I would submit would be and, and arguably just behind North Korea is China. What, what is, what animates President Moon in terms of what he hopes to achieve and uh, what we should expect? Yeah, uh, important question, Rexon. Um, let, me, let me begin by saying that, you know, I, I don't make a habit of grading uh, my president's homework, uh, nor the homework of, the, of our key allies. So uh, I'll start with that. I think that what animates uh, President Moon is a true love of his country. He, he, that manifests itself in ways that are not always in alignment with us. And that's okay. You know, uh, Korea is, is a staunch and critical ally of the United States. And President Moon understands that. The Korean people uh, understand that. And he's their representative, just like you know, President Biden is ours. Uh, clearly, North Korea and his desire to, to forge a relationship with North Korea that is much different than the relationship that exists today. And that, that, that's going to run uh, counter to some of mm-hmm. uh, our views, but not just America's views, but also the United Nations views. The sanctions that are in place, for example, uh, aren't American sanctions. Uh, they're United Nations sanctions. Uh, and so he can't do all that he wants to do, given the sanctions regime as it exists today. So that's a point of, of tension. Clearly, China, the People's Republic of China, PRC, is an issue. You know, we are South Korea's only security ally, but the PRC is their largest trading partner. So that, that's a balance. And we see what happened when security butted heads with uh, economics over the THAAD, the Terminal High Altitude mm-hmm. Area Defense Missile System that, that we, the United States and South Korea as allies, put in place in Southern South Korea. China retaliated hugely mm-hmm. and uh, expensively and, and uh, economically uh, against Korea for that. So President Moon has to, has to deal with that. You know, I was often asked if we, were, if we the United States, uh, are asking South Korea to make a choice between uh, the People's Republic of China and us. And I said, no, that's a false narrative. Korea has already made its choice. We, they are our ally. In 1953, uh, you know, uh, began the formal alliance. We have almost 30,000 troops that are stationed on Korean soil for the defense of Korea. Korea uh, made its choice already, as did the United States. So it's, it's a false narrative to suggest that we are asking them to make a new choice uh, between the People's Republic um, and us. So that, that's an issue he's got. Uh, and, and, you know, you mentioned he's got a year left. So there's, there are legacy pressures involved uh, in that. And uh, one of those, of course, is, is North Korea. Uh, he won't be reelected. He can't be. The president, as you know, served for only a single five-year term. But his party can be reelected. Mm-hmm. And so that's an issue. You know, we just saw the by-elections uh, earlier this year where the new mayor of, of Seoul and the new mayor of Busan uh, were elected from the uh, opposition party. Mm-hmm. Significant. And so I'm sure they're, they're looking at that and, uh, you know, and uh, listen, you know, people have a, people get to vote. People have yeah. a voice. Ambassador, did that, can I just ask, did that surprise you, the election results? 
Yes. Uh, what surprised me was the magnitude uh, of the opposition victory, the conservatives' victory. Uh, and I was surprised, quite frankly, that that uh, the soul went the way it did. I think uh, all everyone was predicting Busan uh, would go the way it did, though not to the extent that it did. Uh, but Seoul was a surprise. Mm -hmm. One of the points that you made earlier about how costly it was for South Korea to install the THAAD anti-missile defense system. Um, yeah, we have seen all of the boycotts of Korean products in China, how Lotte really lost much of its business there. And it seems we're seeing sort of a similar uh, dynamic with a lot of China, what China is doing right now with, say, Australian goods and the boycotts and export bans or import bans of Australian goods. I think, I can't think, um, they're running out of products to actually stop importing from Australia, yeah. which makes me think about the importance of alliances, right? If you're going to counter uh, this growing assertiveness that comes from China, whether on the military side of things or on the economic side of things, how important is it to build these partnerships around the region? And what do you think more needs to be done at this point? Uh, I'll start off by saying what I've said over and over again in speeches and, and other venues, and that is that alliances matter. I, in my opinion, they're the most integral part of American foreign policy uh, is our alliances and partnerships throughout the world. You know, the Biden administration's new interim national security guidance talks about alliances. You know, uh, uh, President Biden himself has said that uh, alliances are our greatest asset. You know, just last month, I think, uh, Secretaries Blinken and Austin wrote a joint uh, op-ed, and they, and they said that alliances are vital to our national security. Uh, they deliver for the American people. I, you know, I, I think that, that speaks everything uh, there is to say about how uh, the United States views alliances and partnerships today. You know, you can unite or you can uh, slash and burn in, in your approach to, to alliances and partnerships. Uh, I, I think it's clear uh, where we are today. Ambassador, I'd like to shift a little bit and uh, see if you might put on your former hat as the PACOM and then Indo-PACOM commander and ask you a bit about the defense and security outlook um, in the region. And, and I guess my first question is, you know, if you read the literature about the balance between the United States and China militarily right now, there's some fairly compelling studies and analysis that, that we are not where we want, we should, the United States is not where we should be, and that China's capabilities have grown dramatically to the point where uh, there are questions about you know, our, our ability to compete in a, a, a peer conflict. And I guess my, my, my question is, you know, you, your career in the Navy was as an aviator, and one of the issues that animates the discussion is, are we investing in the right systems? And are there legacy capabilities, big ticket capabilities, and to put a fine point on it, things like aircraft carriers, that we need to revisit in an era where the United States defense budget is not going to fund everything we are doing now and what we need to be doing in addition. Where I want to start is, what is your view about legacy systems, 
and what should be, say, the top three to five priorities if you had the ability to advise President Secretary Austin for the capabilities we want to have if we think 10 or 20 years down the line? Yeah, uh, and it, clearly an important question that, that's uh, being asked and debated in, in Washington today. Look, um, in, in comparing the Chinese military's capabilities with just the U.S. military's capabilities today is night and day, in, in my view. You know, they have a, a couple of carriers that are minor in, in capability in comparison with a modern American aircraft carrier. Uh, and if, if carriers were as vulnerable as some people think they are, then why are the Chinese trying to build new ones? Uh, you know, why are they trying to copy that? Uh, carriers uh, provide the U.S. a significant flexibility uh, across the globe that we see playing out today in Afghanistan as we, as we begin the drawdown with uh, assets on the ground. It's the carriers that's going to provide and necessary air cover and strike capability uh, until the, the end of the, the drawdown. So uh, we see that every day. Uh, to say that, to, to, to call the modern American aircraft carrier a legacy platform is sort of like calling a Tesla mm -hmm. a, a legacy Model T, right? I mean, sure, it, it's an automobile. It, it has four points of rubber that meet the road, but everything about it is completely different than an internal combustion engine driven car of the 20th century, really. Uh, the Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier uh, is a technological marvel. It had some growing pains coming up, but it's just cleared all those. It's not a legacy in that sense. Uh, if you worry about China's ability to strike a fine first, which is not insignificant, and then strike a moving aircraft carrier, think how much easier it is for China to find and strike a fixed land-based airfield. So, uh, you know, so the, the, it's all about that. Uh, Amal Davidson, uh, who followed me at Indopaycom just before he retired uh, earlier this month, he called for a $27 billion Pacific deterrence initiative uh, to Congress. Uh, over over five years, that is that is in my view essential, and it's not and a lot of money. We're talking twenty seven billion dollars over five years uh, on a defense budget uh, that's that's uh, uh, almost a trillion dollars. So uh, you know, I, I think that, that that kind of that kind of investment uh, is is essential to keep us on step with regard to the Chinese threat in the next uh, decade. And he's put a time limit on it, right? I mean, I never did that. I said that the 2020s was, quote, unquote, the decade of danger. He has said that China would, could be in a position to uh, invade uh, Taiwan in six years. So, you know, uh, he, he's privy to a lot more intelligence than I am. Uh, and so he made that assessment publicly. So, you know, I, I think that we should uh, take that into consideration and take it to heart uh, that, that he's put a time limit on it. He's asked for a very modest uh, increase in focused funding uh, for uh, Indo-PACOM requirements. Uh, and I think that that gets at the, the issue of, of staying abreast of China.
and if I could just follow up just to push you a little bit, Ambassador, if you think about priorities, like, and you think about capabilities, what, what do you lift up? What are your top three that for the United States, if you think out, you know, what should, what are the top three needed, most important investments for where we want to get to 10 years from now, 20 years from now? You know, those are the things we've got to put in motion today. Yeah, I think command and control associated with uh, missile defense, critical. Uh, you know, and, and Emma Davidson talked about uh, upgunning, if you will, uh, Guam. You know, Guam is, is where America's Day begins, right? That's what they say. I believe that Guam will be the first target in a salvo of attacks against the United States, uh, against the rest of the United States. We can't ever forget that Guam is part of the United States. So command and control in ballistic missile defense, top, top requirement. Investments in space and cyber, top requirement. You know, we're seeing, you know, we, we see the, uh, the infrastructure attacks uh, just last week mm-hmm. on colonial oil on the East Coast. Space and cyber uh, investments. Uh, and then I think ASW, anti-submarine warfare. You know, uh, we are the preeminent, the United States has the preeminent submarine force in the world. We have to keep that. We have to maintain that. We have to nurture it, resource it, and ensure that we never lose that edge. Uh, so I think those are the top three. You mentioned the colonial pipeline. How has the face of national security changed over the decades that you've been in service, given that, of course, we're now talking cybersecurity, but we've also gone through the pandemic, and it seems that health security is as important to the defense and, and national security of a country. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing threats now that we never saw, you know, when I came in the military in 1978. You know, when I went to the academy in 1974, we were still using slide rules. And then we moved into calculators uh, in my second year there. Uh, and then, you know, here, here we are today. Uh, so cyber threats, uh, enormous, enormous capability in cyber, right? I mean, enormous positive benefits just to uh, normal people. Uh, like you and me today, just to have, you know, this, this is a, an outcome of, of the technology and, and all of that. But there's a dark side to all of that. And, and we see, we're seeing it play out. We're seeing the, the infrastructure attacks, uh, ransomware attacks, entertainment industry attacks that are cyber-based. We, we see state-enabled cyber attacks against countries as well. So, not insignificant. We have to have a way to improve our own infrastructure uh, to prevent this sort of stuff. If you have the oil delivery industry today, or you're going to have power grids tomorrow. So, uh, you know, uh, we have to get our act together in cyber. We have to empower General Lacassoni at uh, U.S. Cyber Command uh, to do the things that are necessary in order to defend uh, our country against uh, cyber attacks. Ambassador, as commander, of Indo-PACOM, the region under in your area of responsibility extends, you know, out to India, and you know there's been a a substantial push, and frankly, in my view, you know, more progress than you might have anticipated in generating alignment and greater common interest among. Uh, United States, Australia, Japan, and India, the so-called quad countries. 
And I, I think this is a, a the the interest in deepening and expanding our relations with India bilaterally, and then through this and other groupings, um, I think everybody shares this interest. You know, my 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 question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, based on your time uh, at Paycom and and your reflections serving out in the region. What's in the art of the possible? Do you believe with India over again? I I, I tend to want to hear perspectives in a bit longer time frame. You know, five or ten years from now, right? I think in the last decade, we've made surprisingly large steps forward with India. And I think a, a 10 years ago, hard to predict we'd be where we are today. So where should we be aiming as the sort of guidepost that informs our particular actions when it comes to a partner, not an ally, a partner like India? I, I think uh, India and the United States are on the cusp, if not actually over the top, already on a great relationship um, for the next decade. Uh, world's largest democracy, uh, India, uh, for sure, uh, shares common values, common interests, and common concerns with the United States. Their military looks more like the US military than a lot of other countries that, that are our allies. They have the largest C-17 uh, fleet outside of the United States. Uh, they're buying P-8 Poseidon uh, anti-submarine warfare uh, aircraft, helicopters, uh, you name it. And so th there is a potential there for a, a great defense partnership, uh, let alone uh, the common ideals uh, between uh, India and Indian people in the United States. A key country, for sure, in the Indian Ocean. I'm glad to see that our outreach to India is strong and increasing uh, over the past several years. I spoke at, at the first three uh, Rosina Dialogues. Mm -hmm. I keynoted the first one in 2016, and I called for the Quad. I called for a resurgence of the Quad. You know, the Quad had gone into hiatus 2007-2008 mm -hmm. timeframe, and, and I called for it to, to, to be brought back into being. I was ridiculed at the time uh, by some pundits in Washington, uh, but I'm, I'm glad to see that, that we are approaching the quad uh, in such uh, a proactive way these days. Uh, I think it's important to talk about what the quad is not. As people have said most recently, I think uh, Edgar Kagan, Kagan said, you know, the quad is not an Asian NATO. Mm -hmm. It's not a military alliance. Uh, he called it an open uh, architecture that can address challenges like climate change, uh, the COVID mm -hmm pandemic, uh, technology, uh, and the like. You know, when, when I'm asked, should other countries uh, become a member of the Quad, I, I've, I've likened it to American college football, right? I mean, the Big Ten has 14 teams. Uh, the Big 12 has 10 teams. So who says the Quad has to have only four teams? Why can't the Quad have five, six, seven, eight teams? But I think it's important, though, that you look at what the Quad stands for. It's, you know, the four leaders got together and wrote an op-ed recently, yeah. and they talked about it's democratic nations dedicated to delivering results in co-op and through practical cooperation. So democratic nations delivering results, practical cooperation. 
Why would countries like South Korea not want to be a member of the Quad? You know, and, and who's to say they can't be a member, right? There's no referee. There's no president of the Quad. There's no, uh, you know, general secretary or anything like that. So, you know, I, I think it behooves countries like Korea to look uh, at the Quad. And I think they would find that the Quad's values, such as they have been articulated, comport uh, with them. You know, Joe Yoon just said uh, just a couple of days ago that Korea should look broadly at this as an opportunity, mm -hmm. for example. Do you think, based on all of your time with President Moon, that he would entertain the concept of associating more directly with the Quad before he leaves office? Well, I think he should. Uh, I think, as Joe Yoon said, you know, uh, this is an opportunity. Uh, there is an element of the Quad, though it's not formally stated because there's no formal document that says this is what we believe is the Quad, except for the the, uh, uh, the statement that the four leaders made. Uh, there is this concern about and support for the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific, right, uh, where, where you have... Uh, free and open Indo-Pacific that's free of coercion and intimidation and economic retaliation by any country against another, right? So that sounds like it's focused on, a, on countering moves by countries like China. Right. So again, Korea, uh, you know, is, is, has, to, has to look at this. But in the overarching scheme of things, Korea is far more aligned with the values that seem to be emanating from the Quad than they are uh, opposed to it. So, you know, I, I, think, I think they should, uh, the government there should seriously consider figuring out how to, to join in the Quad. And, you know, there's an element also of Japan is in it mm -hmm. and all that. But in, in my reading of things in the, in the past few years, Japan is not blocking South Korea from cooperative diplomacy, if you want to use that term. I think Victor Child coined that term recently, this idea of cooperative diplomacy, which the Quad is, is, is clearly squarely in that quadrant. Uh, Japan is not going to block Korea from participating in cooperative diplomacy. And I think Korea should not block itself from the opportunity that something like the Quad affords. You mentioned that back in 2007, 2008, you wanted a stronger pod, uh, more meetings. And now we're seeing this happen. And it seems to be sort of a counter reaction to a more assertive China, like-minded allies coming together. Does that mean that we will see more of this momentum for these like-minded allies and associations to get together, not perhaps in an official setting, but in order to pursue common interests. But then on the flip side, will we see more of that among other allies, among other partnerships? Remember when there was the attack on Capitol Hill, where you saw officials from Russia coming out, officials from China, officials from Iran, criticizing what was happening in the U.S. together. Will we see that dynamic play out? Sure. I, I think we'll see it play out in, in both sides, right? I mean, why would you not, if you're an Asian country, why would you not want to have your voice joined with others who are advocating for a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, free of coercion, intimidation, retaliation, 
you know, why would you not support freedom of navigation, which is a value? Uh, it's not a military tactic. It's a it's a common value. Why would you not support that, right? And so I, I think we're going to see more of these informal groupings, uh, uh, you know, groupings of like-minded. Uh, there's, uh, there's a movement out uh, called, you know, there's a Democracy 10 grouping that's starting to sort of coalesce. So I, I think these are, these are important uh, voices, and, and it allows small countries uh, to join groupings where their voices can be amplified, right? I, I fully expect to see more of these. On the other side, uh, you're going to see groupings uh, like uh, PRC, Russia, Iran, maybe North Korea, you know, uh, as well. Uh, but that's no reason why uh, we shouldn't support these other groupings. In fact, it's a reason to have these other groupings. You know, we can get into the debate of chicken or the egg, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, in, in the practical world, there's a chicken and there's an egg and we have to deal with it. So... You know, one might argue, you know, it's always a, a complex, challenging time, but I think it held true a little more during your tenure in terms of U.S.-South Korea relations. We have a, a deep alliance, goes back decades. Uh, we fought shoulder to shoulder, um, but certainly uh, a time when, when I think some elements of the alliance and the relationship were stressed. Can you talk a little bit about, about some of those, those challenges and, and how you approach them? You know, we had a, a difference of view over money in terms of how we share costs for the alliance. And, you know, between allies, that's one of the most difficult things to come to agreement on. And, uh, and, and you know, I know we want to get to the question of North Korea, given the summits that occurred, you know, between the United States and North Korea. But can you speak a little bit about the dimensions in the relationship, some of the complexities and kind of how you see the, the path going forward? Yeah. So uh, uh, great question. Uh, and, you know, my time as Indo-PACOM commander and my, in the beginning of my, my the end of that time and, and the beginning of my time as ambassador flowed together. And it's important that, that I make that comment because at the end of my time, at the end of 2017, we were at the height of fire and fury, provocations, ballistic missile tests, nuclear tests and all that from North Korea. And I was in command. And then uh, as I was transitioning and in the ambassador course that I talked about and getting ready to testify, you know, we had the Singapore summit. And before that, uh, in the early part of uh, 2018, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. So the dynamic had changed completely. By the time I got to Korea, it, it was in a, an entirely different place from, the t uh, from when I visited Korea in 2017. A palpable difference, right? I mean, right, right there on Gwangamun Square in front of the embassy, the, the heart of downtown Seoul, you know, people were relaxing. You, you, could, you could almost see a sigh of, of relief, a sense of relief uh, that the pressure from the provocations from the North were gone. So that was the environment that I, I came into based on the environment that I had left, uh, which, was, which was dramatic. Uh, you talk about SMA, the Special Measures Agreement, the cost-sharing agreement between the uh, United States and our different allies. Each one is different. And, uh, you know, uh, our, uh, the SMA uh, was about to expire when I got to Korea. And, you know, they were roughly paying uh, eight to $900 million uh, a year. Uh, President Trump asked for a $5 billion uh, per year cost-sharing mm -hmm. agreement, you know, 500%. Uh, that was hard uh, for the, our Korean ally. 
uh, to swallow, especially after they had paid almost $10 billion in building uh, Pyongyang Tech, uh, Camp Humphreys, the new base for U.S. forces yep. Korea, uh, out of Yorkson and all that. And uh, they were buying an enormous amount of uh, U.S. military hardware for their uh, forces. Uh, and on top of that, you know, uh, we, we in the United States asked them for a $5 billion, 500% increase in their contributory support to cost sharing. Hard to take, hard message to deliver. Uh, but, you know, I'm the president's uh, envoy. Uh, that's the role of the ambassador. So, you know, I deliver the message. Uh, we never got it done. Uh, and, and uh, you know, to be honest with you, I can't blame the Koreans for, 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 for not doing it. Uh, now it is done. Uh, and in uh, a, a much more, uh, I think, fair way. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pleased that that is behind us. It's a multi-year agreement. So the, the, the rest of the Biden administration first term doesn't have to deal with that. Uh, the rest of the Moon administration and well into the next administration won't have to deal with it. How great is that? Now the two allies can deal with, with uh, other important issues. Uh, other things that happened during my time, which were significant, uh, pandemic, you know, that started at the beginning of uh, 2019, ran through the rest of my time there. I think Korea is a role model for the rest of the world, a global model on how to deal with the pandemic, follow the rules, follow the science works and works in Korea and the results uh, speak for themselves. Trade and economics, big part of my time there. You know, I was very comfortable dealing with the security aspects of the alliance, the, even the special measures agreement, as difficult as that was. Economics was new to me. Uh, trade was new to me. Foreign commercial service, great outfit. Commercial attaches, uh, posted in Seoul. Works, they work for the Commerce Department. Very helpful. Um, so uh, we got CORUS, the Korean-U.S. Free Trade Agreement 2.0 done. Uh, hard negotiations. Uh, but we got them done, and uh, that was terrific. That, of course, part of that part of the whole equation, uh, retaliation from the PRC, uh, and all the issues dealing with the PRC, uh, People's Republic of China, uh, and how the intersection of of that uh, and and our lives. I'd like to ask you about something that you said earlier that a lot of the things that you learned while you were working with Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry, you took to the job of diplomacy. But of course, as you said, you were delivering a message that was very difficult coming from a very different administration, which with very different views on all of those issues that you talked about. How did you resolve the two? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I got criticized quite significantly in, in uh, certain uh, quarters of the uh, Korean press um, because of the stance that I took. But as I reminded them, you know, I'm, I'm uh, the U.S. ambassador to Korea, not the Korean ambassador to the United States. So that's the job of the ambassador, right, is to, is to be the president's envoy and to deliver the messages from the president. You know, I got into a big discussion one time uh, and I even wrote a speech about it, the difference between being an ambassador and being a combatant commander, a military commander. You know, you could go back to the to the Korean word for ambassador, which is desa, which means big messenger. That's what you are. You're the big messenger. If you did the same uh, etymological uh, extrapolation on on a commander, it would be commanding decision maker, commanding troops, right? A completely different thing. But 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 the word desa explains it completely. You know, I, I'm the president's uh, envoy, the president's messenger. That's my job. So 
you know, uh, that, that was uh, uh, that was one of the challenges there. And you also had to be that the messenger representative, the delivering that message during a very uh, tricky summits in the, whether it's in Singapore, Hanoi, or or the DMZ. Tell us a little bit about the role that you're playing during those talks. Well, I I had no role in Singapore. Uh, I was in the process of uh, I was in Washington during Singapore. Uh, during Hanoi, that uh, happened right after I got there. You know, uh, n- no direct role, right? I mean, I mean that 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 kind of negotiation when when it involves the, the president is handled the State Department. You know, the action officer, Secretary of State, if you will. But the the ambassador's role, the embassy's role, is to facilitate it, set the conditions, do all the logistics, all the planning. And then deal with the aftermath of it, you know, deal with the run up to it, work with the foreign minister. I work with secretary or with uh, Minister Kong. Uh, I work with the uh, national security advisor, uh, national security uh, director directly uh, and that kind of thing to set the conditions in advance uh, of the summit. Once the summit is underway uh, and then it's the president and the secretary of state that are doing the work up. Do you feel you should have had a bigger say when it comes to some of those talks, especially that you were on the ground um, and you were getting to know and hear more things from the local governments as well? No, uh, I, I felt that, you know, in, in preparing uh, the secretary and the president for the summit, you know, the embassy was asked to, to provide briefing memoranda, comment on briefing memoranda and the like. And and we did, and we took a we took a very aggressive role in in developing these memoranda that that reflected the reality on the ground as we saw it. We being the embassy and me, the team. Uh, and I felt that that our inputs were considered uh, and were taken on board. So that's the role of the of the uh, country team, uh, the embassy team, uh, and the ambassador in preparing the secretary of, of uh, state and or uh, the president uh, for summits. So when I traveled with Secretary Clinton and Secretary uh, Kerry, uh, I saw that firsthand in execution, right? Because I was on, on, on the other side then. And, you know, the ambassadors in, in countries that we went to, sometimes they attended the meetings of the principals at the table. Sometimes they did not. Right. But all the setup in ensuring that that the meetings happened, that the talking points were prepared, uh, the receptions and stuff, all that, that fell on the embassy to do. And, you know, uh, and we did. And so I felt very comfortable that I didn't feel ignored. Uh, I didn't feel sidelined or anything like that. Ambassador, we've ran a little over, but I think it's a reflection of the depth of our conversation and, and the, frankly, the sweep of your knowledge, uh, insights, and experience. Um, I want to thank you for joining us today. Really interesting discussion, incredibly insightful, particularly as we talked about earlier in advance of the South Korean president visiting the United States here shortly and with everything else that's going on in the region. So thank you. We, we really appreciate it. You bet, uh, Rex, and thanks for the opportunity. I'll just add that this is uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Uh, we're seeing this uptick in violence against Asian Americans and Asians in America, in our homeland. 
it's uh, disturbing and terrible, uh, to be honest with you. So I think we should all do what we can to, to put a stop to this. Um, certainly add our voices to those who are calling for an end uh, to this violence. Thank you very much for making that point. Uh, we end this podcast on that very, very important note. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. You can also access a full video of our conversation at theagentgroup.com. We'll see you next time on TV.